No telos. No end game. No plan. Owen Strand, professor at, of theology at Midwestern, writes, The prevailing view in critical circles today is that mankind is a blank slate, evolved from eons old combustions of gases. We have no greater story, no telos, no ordained end to which we are traveling. We live in a world of personal autonomy, ultra-personal autonomy. I write my own story. I'm captain of my ship. I chart my course. We live in a world of God is dead theology, as Time Magazine uh, reported 50 years ago. And Owen Strand states that the liturgy of God is dead culture can be found in 14 mantras of a self-help company. And they are, and I want you to notice as I read these, how many times the word I, me, or my is mentioned. I am capable. I know who I am, and I am enough. I choose to be present in all that I do. I choose to think thoughts that serve me well. I choose to reach for a better feeling. I share my happiness with those around me. My body is my vehicle in life, and I choose to fill it with goodness. I live energetic and alive. My life is unfolding beautifully. I am confident. I always observe before reacting. I know with time and effort that I can achieve whatever I want. I love challenges, and I love learn from overcoming them. Each step is taking me where I want to be. Now, I'm not saying everything in this is bad, but it, so, it shows that the mindset of our culture is me, I, and I will do. The perspective here is one of self-determination and self-authenticating. No telos, no end goal. There's no meta-narrative, narrative, no larger story. Matter of fact, there is no narrative, no story at all. But despite the overwhelming chant of this kind in our society, despite the loud vibrato of his creatures, God has very much to say about a story, about an endgame. Proverbs 16.9 states that a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord will determine his steps. And one such man was Abraham. And God called Abraham out of what is now northern Kuwait, uh, southern Iraq area, and to show him to a good land that he was going to place him in. He had his wife, Sarah, and God made a covenant with Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the story of Abraham, but one thing that is important here is he makes a covenant. Um, and this was a practice in the Near East where they would take certain animals. So in this case, it was a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And they would be split in half, and then those halves would be laid out. And it would be a bloody mess, and there would be blood between them. And then the two people making the covenant would walk hand in hand, barefoot, through that bloody mess between those split creatures, basically saying, symbolizing, let this happen to me if I break my end of the deal. But in Abraham's case, God walked alone as a blazing torch through the middle. Abraham didn't walk. And by doing so, God is saying, I'm taking on both sides of this covenant. It's going to come to pass. According to Gentry and Wellam, God was saying in Near East culture, I love you so much, Abraham, and I promise that this covenant will come true for you and for your children. I will never break my covenant with you. 
I will, my plan will come to pass. But what he's not saying here is go and chart your own course, Abe. Do what you want. He's saying this is going to happen even if you fail. And Abraham did fail. You can read about that in Genesis. But his descendants still were like the stars. The stars in the heaven. God takes him outside and says, look at the stars. Your descendants will be like this. Out of you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Which tells us two things. One, Jesus came out of Abraham's uh, lineage. One of the ways, or the way, that all the world was blessed. But also, if you're here and you're a Christian, you are one of those stars that Abraham saw that night. Think about that. Another one of Abraham's descendants was David. And after David had settled in Israel, Saul was dead, not throwing spears at him and stuff anymore. Um, he had beaten all the enemies all around. David looks out one day and he sees the Ark of the Covenant and it's in the tabernacle, a tattered tent. And David's in this big mansion and he says, you know, it's not right that the Ark of the Lord is in a tent and I'm in this nice house. So I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And what does God say back? Does he say, oh, thanks. That's, you know, that's what I was looking for. He says, no, no, no. You're going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And First Chronicles 17 says this, and now, in contrast to what I read about those 14 mantras, listen here to what God has to say. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, a name like the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all of your enemies." Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. God says to David, look here, I'm God. Watch what I'm going to do. This is my story. I'm writing history. In contrast to those 15 mantras I read, where we read people say, I, me, I'm going to do. The holy creator of the universe says, no, my will will be done. One last uh, instance from the Old Testament, thinking of Daniel, the book of Daniel, and Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of one of his buildings in Babylon, and he's looking out on Babylon, and he gets puffed up with pride, and he says, ah, look at all this I built. And what does God do? Well, he turns him into this like crazy guy, and he's out in the wilderness, and his hair grows long, it says like feathers, and he's got long fingernails, and he's eating grass like a cow. And so God restores his sanity and this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. You can find this in Daniel chapter 4. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. 
Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. And no one can block his hand. And no one can say to him, what have you done? So is there a greater story this morning? Is there really no telos? There's no end game to what's going on. Are we blank slates that are writing our own story? Why are we here? Well, the late Baptist theologian Carl F.H. Henry wrote, Christians worship the God who takes initiative, who plans, creates, judges, reveals, redeems. We learned last week about the slave, a slave that is bought. Someone bought the slave. He is the author of history. His plans will come to pass for his glory, not my glory, not your glory, not my plans, not your plans, but God's plans. Today, if you're visiting with us, we're going to continue a story or continue a series in 1 Peter called The Marrow of the Christian Faith. 1 Peter is written to a group of persecuted churches in Asia Minor. The apostle is writing to the church to encourage them to press on despite ill treatment. And that is essential to remember for the entire book as we go through, but it's essential to remember this morning because it gives us the context of what is being said. These are persecuted people. These are people that are being dragged out and crucified, beheaded, fed to wild animals, the church in the first century. He reminds them that they have been saved according to the foreknowledge of the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, cleansed by the precious blood of the spotless Lamb, as we learned last week. And to expect trouble, to be sober, to live for eternity. Love each other with brotherly love. Reject slander. Reject deceit. And so, the text that I would like to call your attention to this morning is 1 Peter 2, 4-12. First Peter, second chapter, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, co a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the, corner has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word, word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, we find two characteristics regarding the identity of God's holy nation. First, God's holy nation are living stones, like the living stone. Second, God's holy nation battles sin and keeps its conduct honorable. Again, two characteristics of the identity of God's holy nation. God's holy nation are living stones like the living stone. And God's holy nation battles sin and keep its conduct honorable. God's holy nation are living stones like the living stone. So three subpoints here, three groups of people. I don't know if we, people is the right word here, because first we have Jesus, then we have those who rebel, and then we have the church. So first, Jesus Christ is the living stone, the cornerstone, as we just read in verses four through six. As we read last week, Jesus was foreknown or foreloved. This is covenantal language. Um, it's not nearly head um, sense in which the Father knew about Jesus, but it's that he loved Jesus. Jesus has always existed. Um, before the foundation of the world, there was the Son. As Jesus says about himself in the Gospel of John, before Abraham, I am. Which is really important because if you think about that, what does he say? He says, I am. Where else have we heard that? I am who I am. I am the great I am. Jesus, I am. Jesus is God before Abraham was ever thought of. He is fully God. He is fully I am. Yet he's also fully man. He came to earth, wrapped himself in flesh, a virgin conceived and virgin born. But he was rejected by his own people. Israel did not accept Jesus Christ as Messiah. In Luke, we read that enraged by his teachings, they tried to throw him off a cliff. In John 1.11, it says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In fact, if you read carefully in John when he's entered, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. They actually accuse him of being born a child of sexual immorality, saying, we know who our father is, our father Abraham. We are not born like you. Even Jesus' rejection was foreknown. And it was part of the Father's plan from the foundation of the world. If we read Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We find that the rejection of Jesus reaches its climax on the cross. The perfect, spotless, impeccable lamb of God is hung on a cross, naked in humiliation. Friends, whatever, whatever idea you have of the cross, I guarantee you it's not enough. I w- once read um, in the Old Testament, you know when they talk about 
in Esther, uh, Mordecai was hung on a tree. We like to think in terms of like the Wild West, right? Like we grew up with Bonanza and Gunsmoke. So we think like a noose. But what that really meant was they took out a beam and they whittled it to a point and they put a person on it, hooked it by the rib cage, and they would sit out on this all day, all day long. Crows, you know, pecking at them and stuff like that. But it was done in such a manner it might collapse along, but it would not kill them until the end of the day. And I say all that to say, because that was the Persian way of killing someone that was, you know, really bad. The Romans came along and thought it was too humane and created the cross that our Savior was crucified on. That is the rejection that God in the flesh bore for us. Perfect, spotless, never sin, couldn't sin. He knew, knew no sin, became sin for us. You know, last week we talked about that sin never had a landing pad in Jesus' heart. And oftentimes when we read when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating great drops of blood and we think in our human nature that it's just about the crucifixion, that he knew it was coming. But a few decades later, not even a few decades later, just a few years later, martyrs would go to be eaten by wild animals singing songs. So that they were braver than God in the flesh. No, it's that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. It was so against his nature to sin that he had to become what is rebellion against his very self, because he is God. Amen. And he did that for us. And he is a cornerstone chosen and precious. The Father's choosing of the Son is on full display in the resurrection. It's on full display that Jesus' sacrifice was holy and accepted by God because he walked out of that tomb three days after he was rejected by his own people. God's chosen and honored cornerstone. The cornerstone the church is built on. And some will reject this cornerstone. Some will stumble over it. Next we see non-believers disobey and stumble. And as we come to verses 7 through 10, I want to pause and say a few things. First, I want to say that this is, these verses are uncomfortable for some of you, and I want to be charitable for that. to that. I know that. But I also want to say, as one old pastor once said, if you ever come across a text of scripture that you struggle with, you need to stop and reread and study that text of scripture until it saturates your heart, because it is God's word. As a fellow human, I want you to know that I sympathize with you wherever you are in your walk, struggling with this doctrine. But I sympathize, and I will not compromise, because it is God's word. And we must let him dictate truth. As Charles Spurgeon once said, God's word is a lion. You don't defend a lion, you let it out. And so I will not defend God's word. Look with me at verses 7 through 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word, as they were destined to do. Reading verses like these are why I never understand the seeker-sensitive movement. If you don't know what that is, it's, you don't worry about it. You don't need to know what it is. But we can stand and hand people cups of latte as they walk in, and as they leave, hand them a hot dog and a $20 bill every week, and they will still reject Jesus. If you do not want Jesus for Jesus, you're not going to want him for a hot dog and a $20 bill, too. 
We read in Revelation, there's a story of one-third of these like rebellious people are destroyed, like God's raining down fire on them, and what do they do? Do they say, oh, wait, we better not do this? No, they shake their fist at God, and still they rebelled. It says, still they would not repent. I was reading in my daily Bible reading this morning at verse 16, three times God is doing these things to people, um, these rebellious people, and still they don't repent. They still shake their fist at God. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I was a newer believer, I used to think, man, that person's going to be really sorry one day when they find out that Jesus was God and that he, they rejected him. But there's a sense in which even people standing before God are not going to repent. It's as though hell is locked from the inside. Like an addict that is killing themselves, they know they're miserable, but still they will not turn. They will not choose right. Those who disbelieve stumble on Christ. Think Romans 1. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship the creature rather than the creator. Schreiner writes, Their stumbling over the cornerstone is not accidental, as humans often trip unintentionally while walking. In this instance, humans stumble because of their rebellion. They do not want God. They do not want to submit to his lordship. But also, in other places, we have to take the full counsel of God. The Bible also never exempts humanity for its responsibility for sin. While the Father who writes all of history is sovereign over that which comes to pass, the rebellious still willingly fulfill their dark desires by rebelling against God. One pastor one time, Spurgeon, said that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are like parallel train tracks that seemingly meet out in the distance, and we are not going to understand it until we get to heaven. You know, I've preached at different churches. When I was in seminary, I would preach at churches that didn't have a pastor or something like that. And sometimes when you preach on a hard doctrine like this, someone's always ready to wait and tell you um, what you need to believe about it. And friends, I would just say that for 2,000 years, the church has struggled with this. I think that the Bible leaves it in tension. And then we need to simply trust and submit to what God says. And here he says that those who disobey the word as they were destined to do. They stumble because they disobey. But unlike the rebellious, third, the church is made up of living stones. So it's kind of divided out here. So first we want to go back to chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5, where Peter writes, You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So once you were not a people, now you are a people. You are God's temple. He dwells among us. There's an ancient story of a notable person in ancient Greece who visits Sparta. And he says to the king, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? And the king points to his army and he says, the walls are there. Each man is a brick. It's kind of the same thing here. You are the temple if you are a Christian. God's true spiritual house are those who have come to faith in Christ. The house that God promised David to build with a king that will reign forever. Jesus is the chosen and honored cornerstone. Therefore, the rest of the building takes its shape and form from the cornerstone. This is not the idea of a keystone, like on a bridge, the stone that kind of holds it together, and if you knock the keystone out, the whole thing will fall. No, the cornerstone is a foundational stone on the ground, is the idea the author has in mind. And we are built up taking the same shape and form of our master. So the question I have for you this morning is, have you believed in this stone? 
Are you a part of this temple? Are you annoyed when you hear the gospel preached? Are you like, yeah, yeah, I got that. I don't need to hear it again today. Are you a part of this, of this temple? If you're not, I pray this morning that you would cast yourself on this stone lest you stumble over him. Second, a chosen race for God's possession. We're going to read 9 through 10, but we're going to start back in verse 8. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you are here and you have trusted Christ, you too are a chosen and precious stone like Christ. Just as he has appointed the disobedient to destruction, he has appointed his people to life. He has called the church out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let those words sink in. Called the church out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were called out of the darkness you once walked, and now you bask in the light of Christ, of God the Father. You were blind, but now you see. My conversion, um, you know, when I read Paul say, I'm the chief of sinners, I often say, yeah, I don't know, Paul, maybe I'm up there with you. Uh, many of you know I was not converted until 30. Um, but I did not just decide to clean up my own act. I was walking in darkness until God called me into light. I remember not knowing anything of the Bible or of theology, um, but I was in the military, and I said to one of my buddies, I said in a very military-like way, I said, it feels like God has a giant boot on my chest, and I can't get away. Where I used to try and read the Bible sometimes to make people happy in my life, now I wanted to read the Bible. My desires changed. Your salvation is all of grace. You have no merit in it. When I visited you last fall, I preached Ephesians 2. Um, I'm going to read that to kind of bring in all of Scripture, that this isn't just Peter. Well, it's all God-breathed Scripture, but we're going to read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses of sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is another word for the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that anyone can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus for good works, that God has prepared beforehand, that we would walk in them. We see here that we were dead. Dead is a strong word. Not kind of alive, but dead. 
And but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive by his grace that no one can boast. No one can say, this is my own doing, or I'm writing on my own slate. If your decision is up to you, then you have something to boast about. I remember one time I was sitting in a class, and the guys I'm about to talk about, I love dearly, so I'm not talking bad about them. Um, but they were guys that, by God's grace, and I do believe it's God's grace, were saved at a very young age. Um, and they were raised up in the church, and they were talking, and they were like, well, I was saved at seven, and I started teaching Sunday school at 13, and the other guy said this, and I wasn't really paying attention to what they were saying. I was you know, looking at my Bible or something before class. And they looked at me and said, when were you saved? And I said, oh, I was 30. And their eyes kind of glossed over, and they were like, oh. Well, and one of them looked at me and said, well, that's okay, too. I said, what do you mean that's okay? <laughs> I was walking in darkness. Now I'm walking in light, and it's all of God's grace. That's more than okay. But it was after class I started to realize for them it was almost like a competition. I was saved at 7. I was saved at 13. Oh, you're just 30. Well, you're the back of the bus, but it's okay. You're with us. That's not it, guys. It, it, you have nothing to boast about. We are saved by the grace of God. A man who knew that very well was C.S. Lewis. He knew much about God's mercy. If you don't know C.S. Lewis, if you've ever read or seen the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis wrote it. He grew up in Northern Ireland. He served as an infantry officer in the trenches of World War I, where he was wounded. He came back to England, was educated at Oxford. He later taught there medieval studies. And, but the, another thing about C.S. Lewis is he was a committed atheist and was actually saved as an English professor at Oxford. In his book, Surprised by Joy, which is a story of his conversion, he's not a theological man. He says that throughout his books. He says, I'm a mere Christian. Um, but these are some of the things he tells about in his own conversion. He describes his conversion as a breaking in that he was dragged through a doorway. He said that am amiable, I can't say that word, agnostics will talk cheerfully about a man's search for God. But to me, as I was then, they might as well have talked about a mouse's search for the cat. We are redeemed to God's glory. Isaiah tells us God will not share his glory with anyone, including us, including his people, God's glory. You were once not God's people, now you are, but you are a priesthood. Third, we see a royal priesthood, a priesthood of believers. Now, the great irony in this text is that the apostle, the, the Roman church uses to set up something called apostolic secession or this unbroken order of popes is the very guy that's writing saying, no, you are a royal priesthood. It's, it's kind of ironic if you follow church history. But there is no one here that needs to take a guilt offering to some Levites. We do not have to go and confess our sins to someone else. Through the blood of Christ, through his very flesh, Hebrews tells us, we can come directly to the Father and confess our sins as we did this morning. Amen. You are offering spiritual sacrifices. As new covenant believers, you are sanctified. You are set apart just as the priests were in the Old Testament. You are set apart for purity and purpose as required by God. Now, we don't... There's, there's two extremes you could take, but one, on one hand, we still have a set-aside pastor. There are men who are called that will one day give account, as Hebrews also tells us, for your souls. But on the other hand, there is no priesthood like in Leviticus. I love the story of Charles Spurgeon um, and how he was converted. I don't know if any of you have ever heard it or if you even care. Uh, but he was an 1800s pastor, 
and he was struggling. God was calling him to himself, and there's this huge blizzard, and he can't make it to the church he's been going to. He's raised a congregationalist or something, I think. Anyhow, so he makes it to this church on Artillery Street Road, and it's a primitive Methodist church, and there's just a handful of people, less people than here today, um, like a, a quarter of the people here today. And the snowstorm is so bad that the pastor can't even make it. So what did they do? Well, they said, pastor's not here, closing church, everybody go home. No, there was just a faithful man, just some guy, got his Bible, stood up, opened to Isaiah, and preached Jesus from Isaiah. Charles Spurgeon said it was the worst sermon he's ever heard before or since, (laughs) ever. But it was the one that God used to call the guy we call the Prince of Preachers. Never, just, yeah, you are a royal priesthood. You are living stones. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation that you may proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Proclaim it. Proclaim it in the circles you walk in. Tell of his goodness. If you, and this is important to remember because Like I said, the context, a persecuted church, they were literally taking Christians, sewing them into animal skins, and I forgot what all they put in there with them. It was like a snake, a scorpion, and some other like little animal. They would sew them up and throw them into water. So not only did you drown, but you're being bit by all these things as you drowned. That's what they're doing to Christians. And preaching to them, hey, your life is a blank slate. You get to write it. It's not going to encourage these brothers and sisters. That's a 21st century first world luxury that we have. When your husband has just been beheaded and you're home making dinner for your kids wondering what you're going to do, you don't want to hear 25 steps to live your best life now. You want to know that there is a sovereign God and that he loves you and that you are living for another world. God is sovereign over all the history of the world. And this is exactly what this persecuted band of brothers and sisters these Christians needed to know. And it's exactly what you need to hear today, unless you haven't been watching the news. Robert Murray McShane, a pastor in the 1800s as well, said, the one that loves you the most is the one that tells you the most truth. So friends, my desire this morning is that you would lean into these texts, that you would lean into what God is saying, that you would lean into his truth and let it guide your thinking, not the world. Second, God's holy nation battles sin and keeps his conduct honorable. Look with me at verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil as you, against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or the day of judgment. You were once not God's people, but now you are God's people. So as exiles, God's chosen pilgrims, abstain from passions of the flesh. You were in darkness, now you are not. So your conduct must be different. Sin will still wage war against your flesh. Fight back. The Christian life is not passive. Flesh equals desires that are at odds with the spirit within you. If you are here and you're a Christian, as I have said before, you are branded, you are marked, you are set apart by the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. You, We do not have to pray the Spirit down. If you're a Christian, He is here. He is here because you are here. 
He indwells you. Friends, this is an essential doctrine to remember. This is why it's more important to let the Bible drive your doctrine than songs on the radio. And I ran across an interesting story this week talking about doctrine, and it was about a girl um, who was complaining about Spurgeon. He said, Spurgeon talks about doctrine all the time, doctrine this, doctrine that. He said, just the other day I heard him talking about how the potter is sovereign over the clay. And the guy she was talking to said, well, that wasn't Spurgeon, that was Paul. And she said, well, yeah, that guy talks about doctrine too much too. So learn doctrine, it's in the Bible. Before the philosophical movement called the Enlightenment, theology and devotion were one discipline. And then after the Enlightenment, theology became stuffy stuff for old guys in libraries, and devotion became watered-down bread and butter of the church. Friends, you need to know sound biblical doctrine. Let it dictate your belief. And the flesh wars against the spirit. You are indwelled 24-7, 365 days a year. If you are a Christian, you are indwelled with the spirit. And your natural flesh will struggle against that. And the depth of this struggle, the Bible says right here, is one of warfare. We are not passive. It is not, as the Keswick movement said, let go and let God. But it is fight back. When your temper flares up, remember who you serve. When you're tempted to look at things or think things you shouldn't, fight back. Turn it off. Unplug. When your brother or sister offends you, choose to honor God and work it out, rather than cultivate that grudge. Remember, we are aliens. We are strangers, but we are aliens and strangers together. After uh, my second deployment, I was in Afghanistan, a single guy, and me and a couple of guys, we had about a month off of R&R. And we said, well, we can do what we always do. We can go home, see our families and our high school friends that really don't want to make time for us, and we'll end up watching Bonanza on our grandma's couch, or we can do something together. And so what we decided to do was go to Australia. It was a, you know... A great time. I wasn't a believer, so it wasn't an all-great time, but it was a, a good memory, most part, of me and two of my buddies, a couple of paratroopers, backpacking through Australia, surfing, just doing all kinds of cool stuff. But what it, the reason I tell that story is though, even though us and the Australians have a similar uh, ancestry and all that kind of stuff, and we speak the same language, the three of us really didn't fit in. They were, everyone was incredibly kind to us, and but we still didn't belong. We were Americans in another country. We were pilgrims in a foreign country. But in that case, we were pilgrims in a foreign country together. We leaned on one another. And if you're a Christian, that's you. If you're here and you're a Christian, we are pilgrims together. You do not belong here. Your citizenship is in heaven. The other members of this church are your fellow pilgrims. So while you are an alien, keep your conduct among the natives honorable. Remember that Peter's audience lived in a hostile non-believing society. It wasn't just a non-believing society, but they were hostile to Christians. Something, as I said last week, we are, some of us especially more than others, are learning even now. So live so that non-believers in our community have nothing on you. They got nothing bad to say. Undercut their anger with compassion. Undercut their anger with love. So that on the day of judgment, they will have nothing they can say about you. When, you, when we are attacked, it is tempting to strike back. And Peter's saying, don't do it. Don't strike back. Undercut them with love. Take the high road. Don't give them anything. Glorify God with your actions rather than vending your cating yourself right now. 
God's holy nation battles sin and keeps his conduct honorable. Carry the pack an extra mile. While we look at this text, thinking about how to place applies to our life now, I have three points of application for you. First, as you read the Bible, realizing that it is a unified meta-narrative, which just means a larger story. It's not individual books. It is individual books, but they comprise what God is doing in history, a larger story. Even though there are various human authors, there is a divine author behind the whole storyline. Paul tells us that all of Scripture is God-breathed. The Baptist faith and message says that God is its author. So we don't rank books like this book is higher than this book. It has a divine author behind it all. And even past the Baptist faith and message 2000, the old Baptist, this is called the Second London Confession, or the 1689 by shorthand, says this, The authority of Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself and the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. So, read your Bible and realize there is a unified meta-narrative by a divine author. And this is why we can't cherry-pick verses out. And we have to read it in its context. Read large swaths. Read entire books in one sitting, if possible. See how God relates to humanity through successive covenants, culminating with the new, te- new covenant, which we are currently in. This fall, we're going to walk through a series called The Covenants. So we're going to start with creation, um, the Abrahamic covenant, the Noetic, all the way through until we get to the new covenant and then Advent, or the Christmas season. But you don't have to wait till this fall. You can crack open your Bible to Genesis 1 this afternoon and start to see this storyline in this picture. Start searching out these promises for yourselves. Trust that you that if you have trusted Christ, you are part of this chosen race, that you are safe in the hands of a sovereign God. Know that he is good. Just as the persecuted church in Peter's day needed to be reminded that they were chosen people, so do you need to remind yourself, even when you don't feel like it. And if you have not trusted Christ, I invite you to cast yourself on this cornerstone. And if you want to talk more about that, I will be available whenever you want to talk. Third point of application. Since we are a holy nation that are aliens here on earth, live honorably. As an ambassador in a foreign land, conduct yourself honorably. Evangelize with confidence, knowing that God is in full control. Jesus gave us a great commission. Go, tell the gospel, make disciples of everyone. He is building a house composed of people from every race, every ethnicity, and background. It is a beautiful tapestry of diverse people with one thing in common, and that is Jesus evangelize with confidence, knowing that God is ultimately the one who calls people to himself. He designates the ends, but he also designates the means, us. It is not my personality that fails if someone fails to reject the gospel. Look, if I thought it was all up to me, if I thought it was all up to me, I would be terrified. Because if someone says, no, I don't, you know, I don't believe what you're telling me right now, I would think, man, what did I do wrong? Like, do I talk funny? Like, I know I have some weird mannerisms. Maybe it was one of those. And that's why this person didn't believe Jesus. 
But knowing that God is behind that, I can faithfully tell someone to repent and believe the gospel, turn to Christ, knowing that God has it in control. I am but a mere waiter, a messenger for the king. Proclaim truth. Proclaim truth in your circles with confidence. This morning in this text, we see that God's holy nation are chosen living stones like the chief chosen living stone, and that God's holy nation battle sin and keep their conduct honorable. Thinking about this meta-narrative as we wrap up here, there's a book, we talked about C.S. Lewis, in the Narnia series called The Last Battle. And as you can guess, it's the last book. Um, and in this book, Narnia, which is this you know, foreign country, uh, mythical country, has been invaded. And there's even a false Aslan, who is the lion. If you've never read the books, he's like the Jesus-type uh, guy in the book. And there's a false Aslan. Carapavel, which is the main castle, is sacked and destroyed. And the current king is like, what is happening? Like, Aslan is good. Where is he? I don't understand. He's, he's enslaving Narnians? Wait, that's not, that's not Aslan? And there's just confusion abounding. And even some of the Narnians turn from Narnia to the other side. And then we have the dwarfs who are like, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs, they start saying, and they start shooting arrows into both sides. They're shooting arrows into the opposing army. They're shooting arrows into the Narnians. The last king doesn't know what's happening, but through the story, he does his best to be faithful. He's trying to do what he knows is right, according to what Aslan had said in the past. He's wondering why Aslan's not here, but he keeps fighting. He fights faithfully to the end when he is killed in the story. When he's finally killed, he meets Aslan, and like, everyone in the story, he immediately goes to his knee. And what does Aslan say to him? He says, well done, good and faithful servant, just like we read in the Bible. He was faithful. He trusted in the story, Aslan, despite his confusion. And that's what Peter's getting at here. We don't understand what's going on, man. I turn on my news. I can't even turn on my Facebook sometimes and not understand what's going on. But I know that God is sovereign. I know there's a plan. And all I've got to do is be faithful and do what he has told me to do. Trust that God has a plan. Serve faithfully. Despite the loud rants of society, we are not a blank slate. We are not in control of history. God has a telos. He has an end game. He has an end story. In Matthew 16, 5, 16, we read Jesus say, Let your light so shine before others that they see your good works and that they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. His glory is the reason for it all. Stay faithful and pray with me. Well, God, you are good. God, we struggle and don't understand. Your word sometimes is tough because we are still in the flesh, but God, we know that it is your word and that you are good. God, open our hearts. As Pastor Ben prayed this morning, give fertile ground for your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.